The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Today began with some hard news from the White House. The number of Americans confirmed killed by the Hamas terrorist assault on Israel this weekend has climbed to at least 22, and that number may rise. On top of that tragic news, the White House announced today that another 17 Americans remain unaccounted for, and the White House expects the number of known American hostages taken by Hamas to climb. We know that a a number uh, of of those Americans are being held hostage right now by Hamas. I think we all need to steel ourselves for the very distinct possibility that these numbers will, will keep increasing. Uh, and that we may, in fact, find out that um, more Americans uh, are part of the hostage pool. Hamas is believed to have taken around 150 hostages, and the group is threatening to execute those hostages one by one in retaliation for Israeli airstrikes that hit Gazans in their homes. The scale and the brutality of this crisis is without modern precedent. Today, as Israeli troops cleared the sites of Hamas's attacks near Gaza, The scope of this weekend's violence became clear. Soldiers were seen recovering scores of bodies. 260 people killed dancing at a music festival. Families killed in safe rooms or at bus stops just going about their daily lives. Today, the U.S. sent its highest-serving diplomat to Israel, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, in a show of support. President Biden addressed publicly the uh, publicly addressed the war for a third time and spoke to Prime Minister Netanyahu for the fourth time since fighting began on Saturday. Inside Israel, there are signs of political solidarity. Today, Netanyahu and his top political rival, Benny Gantz, formed a unity government in the Israeli parliament. It is something that would have been almost unthinkable just a week ago. But today, with his former political rivals at his side, Netanyahu gave a speech vowing that every Hamas member is a dead man and that Israel would crush and destroy Hamas. To that end, last night, the first plane carrying American ammunition arrived in Israel against the backdrop of the Israeli military amassing tanks and troops near the Gaza border ahead of an expected ground invasion. Here is NBC News chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel on those front lines earlier today. Israel's defense minister promises what's coming next will reshape Gaza forever. We will reach all places, he says. Hamas wanted to change the situation. It will change back 180 degrees and they will regret this moment. As the military buildup picks up pace, Israel has declared the entire area around Gaza a military zone. Israel has brought in enough tanks and armor for a full-scale ground war and is now mobilizing the more than 360,000 reservists called up for national service. A new phase of this conflict is about to begin, and there will be many casualties. Today, Hamas launched rockets past Israel's Iron Dome defense system, hitting the coastal Israeli city of Ashkelon. Meanwhile, airstrikes by the Israeli military in Gaza have displaced more than 260,000 people. 
At least 1,200 Israelis have been killed since this weekend's attacks, 2,700 more injured. In Gaza, the death toll is at least 1,100 people with more than 5,300 injured. That number includes multiple medics and at least nine United Nations employees. But the toll of this war on civilians will almost certainly only get worse. Israel is blocking food, fuel and water from entering Gaza's densely populated region, while Egypt has shut its border, blocking the only evacuation route for civilians to escape Gaza. That means all two million people that live in Gaza are under siege, which makes the task of fighting Hamas while avoiding civilian casualties nearly impossible. As David Ignatius writes in The Washington Post today, Israeli forces will be counterattacking through a maze of tall buildings laced with hidden garrisons and booby-trapped passageways. A former U.S. official told The Post, Hamas must have anticipated that Israel would attack Gaza in revenge for the ghastly attack. What defenses did they prepare? Hamas fighters don't wear uniforms. They hide in high-rises alongside civilians and now hostages. And Hamas may have been planning for this stage of the attack for quite some time. On top of all of that, after shattering Israel's sense of security, Hamas is declaring it has won. And it may very well continue to declare victory no matter what comes to pass. From The New York Times today, it remains unclear whether the high cost to civilians will blow back on Hamas. Even when Hamas attacks first, Gazans tend to blame Israel for their misery. And many have been through so many wars that fatalism prevails. A researcher from Gaza tells The Times today, every war, no matter how many Palestinians die, Hamas will come after it and say, we are victorious. Joining me now is my friend Ali Velshi, MSNBC's chief correspondent, reporting live from Tel Aviv in Israel. Ali, it's great to see you. I trust that you are safe and well. Um, I know we have a slight delay, so let me get right to it. Just the staggering, deeply distressing, scarring in some ways video that we are seeing of this attack, the aftermath, uh, Israeli security forces clearing bodies, recovering the lost uh, who died in the course of this terrorist attack. How is that shaping public sentiment in this moment? We, we know that this was bad. The extent of the brutality just seems to increase exponentially every day. It's incredible. How would you think, uh, after what we first saw on Saturday, that it would be worse on Sunday and on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday? But it actually is. And it is hardening sentiment in this country. Uh, in fact, for many of the Israelis with whom I've spoken, uh, it's not a matter of defeating uh, Hamas. It's a matter of flattening Gaza. It's a matter of doing this in a way that it never comes back. I spoke to a man today who was on one of those, uh, the kibbutzim around Gaza, who said, uh, I want I want them all gone. I want them to go to their friends in Iran and in Egypt. This is this is our land. We want it to be done that way. I have spoken to other people, though, who have served in the military. There's military service. National service is compulsory in this country who have said a war, a ground invasion of Gaza is going to be uh, treacherous for Israeli soldiers. However, they, the Israeli population is united around this. The government is even, uh, they've got a unity government that they formed today between the left and the right. They, the, the, the division here is whether or not the effort should go into the ground offensive, uh, which Richard was talking about earlier, or it should all go toward rescuing the 100 to 150 hostages that Israel, uh, that uh, Israel believes are being held by Gaza. The families of those hostages want the hostage release to be priority number one. Uh, and, and that's part of the issue here, that they don't want this 
war to begin because they're quite convinced that once the ground invasion, there is a war already, but once the ground invasion begins, their loved ones will be human shields. Their loved ones may be killed. They may be killed and videotaped and or filmed and, and, and sent out as propaganda. So that's what the division is. There's nobody who thinks that Hamas shouldn't be dealt with or that there shouldn't be a war. It's about this hostage situation. You and I talked about it last night, and it hasn't evolved substantially. The only thing that's evolved here is that those troops, as Richard said, are amassing in that military zone around the Gaza border. And the situation in Gaza has become much, much worse because of the lack of, uh, of fuel and food. Their, their electricity is now 100 percent gone. And Ali, I understand the desire on the part of the families of those taken hostage to prioritize the rescue of those captive men and women and families, children. But in terms of the broader Israeli public, and of course, I know you haven't spoken to every person in Israel, but give me a sense of how well Israelis recognize the sort of irreconcilable nature of hostage rescue and a ground invasion to flatten Gaza. I mean, have people, I don't want to use the term made peace, but do they accept that one cannot go hand in hand with the other? Yeah, again, this is a country in which everybody serves in the military. So they're all trained. They all understand this. Now, look, since 1973, Israel hasn't seen this. It's seen wars in between, but it hasn't seen this degree of catastrophe, nor has it seen uh, what is likely to come if these troops that are amassed at the Gazan border go in. So they're all conscious of it. They're all aware of it. It's a little bit different than sort of the split sentiment in America during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, where a lot of people didn't have a connection to a, a soldier or a person, who, an American who was dying over there. That's that's not the case here. Everybody is is in this one way or the other. You choose to live in Israel or come to Israel knowing full well that you will serve in the military. So that doesn't seem to be the issue. No one is under the misconception that if Israel goes into Gaza and does that street battle in those those, uh, you know, in between those apartment buildings and those uh, those warrens and those perhaps booby trap buildings that many many Israeli soldiers would die. And in fact, as you know, you put the death toll of civilians. Well, at this point, people realize that if there's a ground offensive, the death toll of soldiers will be very high. And that's a very sort of a, 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 a that's something that it, that Israelis internalize when their soldiers are killed because it feels sort of like a, a national effort. Yeah, they know that if this ground war ensues, lots and lots of, uh, or, or at least many Israeli soldiers uh, will die in it. They're still prepared to undertake it. Just incalculable loss all around, forwards and backwards. Ali Velshi, great reporting. Please stay safe, my friend. Please come back and talk to us more about Thank what you're you seeing and hearing. Thank you. Joining me now is Eamon Mohadeen, the host of Eamon on MSNBC. Uh, he has extensively, extensively covered Gaza, including during the 2014 war. Eamon, it's great to see you. I've been wanting to talk to you since this began. Um, the idea of defeating Hamas, it seems at once quite obvious and yet, in just unbelievably elusive, because at this point, Hamas seems to be as much an organization as it is an ideology and one that will apparently, if you believe the New York Times, claim victory no matter what. Do you think that it's a goal that can even really realistically be approached? I think if the goal is to destroy the organization itself, there are certainly tactical ways that Israel has tried to do that in the past. And history is the best lesson here, because if you look at what Israel has done repeatedly since 2016, even before that, um, it has gone after Hamas very aggressively. And, and we should be very clear about that because Israeli military officials, certainly retired ones, have been clear about that. Yeah. They have killed the spiritual leader of Hamas. They have killed political figures within Hamas. They have killed senior military commanders within Hamas's military wings. They've killed financiers that tried to raise money for Hamas, bomb makers, drone makers. They've gone after all of them. And they've gone inside 
into Gaza in 2014, 2008 Operation Castle. This would be the fifth war in the span of 15 years in which Israel has gone into Gaza and tried to destroy it using air power, everything it has. And every time Hamas has shown itself to be resilient and in some cases has even bound, come back, bounced back with stronger capabilities, as we've just seen now. Yeah. This is the deadliest. So to your point, I think you're right. There is there is an argument to be made that if you go in this time and reoccupy Gaza, you could perhaps destroy the structure of the organization. But if you studied Palestinian history and looked at the rise of militant groups over the years, you would see an evolution from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, in which when one organization is defeated or destroyed, another one evolves in its place. And I think that is... Um, the fundamental issue here, because Hamas is an ideology that builds itself on a central tenet of claiming to be a resistance movement to Israel's occupation, there is always going to be an ability to recruit from Palestinians and get support from countries like Iran who buy into that and are able then to take the next level or to the next organization or to the next generation of fighters. Regardless of what whether they call themselves Hamas. Exactly. Or, or, exactly. or, or something else. You are one of the very few people that I know, <laughs> I think that are on TV, that's actually resided in Gaza. You understand the architecture of that region. There is the sort of ideological battle against Hamas. There's the tactical battle against Hamas. And it seems, I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about what Israeli uh, security forces, defense forces are facing as they try and route out <clears throat> Hamas fighters from such a densely populated area. Yeah, I mean, there's there's um, two layers to the challenge. And I was based as a correspondent in Gaza from 2008 till 2010. I covered Operation Castlet and then subsequently would go back for various operations and wars that happened there. And in the 2008 war, Israel's challenge was to essentially cut Gaza in half to try to separate the northern part of Gaza, which has Gaza City and very densely populated from the southern part of Gaza which was more farmland, but also had big refugee camps and also very densely populated areas. So in addition to the ability of moving around in these densely populated areas with tanks, armored personnel carriers, air power, over the last several years, Hamas has been able to develop a very complicated and sophisticated network of tunnels underground. And in that capacity, it was able to penetrate Israel, cross borders, lay booby traps for them as they moved in, certainly in the northern part of Gaza, like the, the refugee camps in Jabalaya and elsewhere. And it made it very difficult for the Israelis to not only take Gaza, but take and then move within Gaza. So in, in Operation Castled back in 2008, 2009, they did successfully control the entire territory. They divided the territory in half with their tanks and armored personnel carriers. But once they were in there, they stayed outside of the urban centers. Yeah. So it was easy for Hamas at that time to withstand the pressure. Obviously, if they go in this time, they're not going to repeat that. They want to go into the urban areas to really weed Hamas out. But that is where Hamas wants the fight to be tactically. And that's where the danger is going to lie for both Israeli uh, soldiers and the civilians, civilians who have not gotten out. And, and, it's and hostages. And hostages, of course, and the hostages. And it's it's important to remember one thing about the, the Palestinians who may want to leave and who may not want to leave. And, and I heard an earlier guest on our show say this, which is that 60 percent of the Palestinians who live in Gaza are descendants of two um, generations of Palestinians who have either been expelled from their homes or removed from their homes in 1948 and 1967. Yes. So there is this kind of generational trauma that exists among Palestinians about not leaving their homes out of fear of what comes next. So as a result, Palestinians who are who may want to leave 
maybe a large part of it. But there will be Palestinians who will say, this is our homeland. And we know what happened to us in 67. We know what wow. happened to us in 1948. When we left our homelands as refugees, we were never allowed to return. Well, let me ask you one more question. There is a lot of talk about whether or not Egypt will help open up a, a humanitarian corridor for those Gazans who wish to leave. Yeah. It seems like it's given the lack of resources, the electricity, the water, the bombing of, uh, you know, hospitals and so forth, that there's probably still a sizable population that very much wants to get out. Absolutely. And we saw that previously. And are you at all bullish, optimistic that Egypt will be convinced to open up humanitarian corridor here? I am not convinced, and they have not done it in previous wars. And the argument that Egypt provides, and I know that we've been hearing from American officials that they are working on that, and it would be very interesting to see what, if anything, changes the calculation of the Egyptian uh, government. Previously, Egypt has taken the position that if they opened the corridor for Palestinians to leave, that they would become refu- they would become responsible for the refugees. Um, and they've learned from neighboring countries what has happened when other countries have taken refugees and are abandoned by the international community or not. Egypt's position has always been, we will not absolve Israel's position, Israel's responsibility for the people of Gaza by accepting them into Egypt and ultimately being the only party responsible for them. There are no guarantees that if the Palestinians leave Gaza to come to Egypt, they'll be allowed to return to their homes, as we have learned from history. And as a result of that, Egypt has taken a position that the only way to deal with this crisis is through a multi-party agreement. So I've been watching the language of American officials, Jake Sullivan, Admiral Kirby, um, even the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, today before he headed to the region, was very clear. We're trying to work on something. What that looks like, I think, will be very telling. But I don't see the Egyptian government now just simply... Unilaterally. Yeah, unilaterally changing a fundamental principle that it has held on to in four previous wars. They may try to offer relief. They may offer certain amounts of people to come through, but they have never opened the border to simply allow hundreds of thousands, if not a million people, just to come and reside into the Sinai Peninsula. Eamon Mohideen, you are a wealth of information and such valuable perspective in this moment. Thank you, my friend, for joining me on set tonight. When we return, we are going to speak with one of the survivors of the terrorist attack on a music festival in southern Israel near the Gaza border. We'll have more on one woman's harrowing journey. That is next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It has been five days since Hamas launched a terrorist attack on Israeli citizens near the border with Gaza. Journalists have finally begun to access the communities that were first attacked, and horrific details are now emerging about the atrocities that took place. 
NBC News foreign correspondent Raf Sanchez got a glimpse of the devastation in one kibbutz near the border. Terrorists arrived at the gates of Kibbutz Beri just before 6 a.m. on Saturday. Unable to get through, they lay in wait for Israeli civilians to arrive. Today, we walked through those same gates. This is the main entrance. Following a trail of horror spread across this kibbutz, a small Israeli farming commune. The scenes of destruction here are just staggering. The Israeli military says 40 hostages were held in this house. Six soldiers were killed trying to liberate them. And ultimately, you can see the house completely burned out. That harrowing scene resembles the site of an outdoor music festival in southern Israel, where Hamas terrorists killed at least 260 attendees and kidnapped several others. All that remains are a few tents and burned-out cars in the place where thousands of young people, like Milet Ben Haim, gathered to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. Early Saturday morning, Ben Haim and her friends were among the festival goers who fled the event, running through a nearby field as Hamas terrorists closed in on them from all sides. They called police for help, but they were told they were on their own as they hid in the bushes. Six, later, six hours later, Ben Haim and her fellow survivors were found by a stranger who was rescuing people in his car. Joining me now is Milet Ben Haim, who survived the attack. Milet, thank you so much for, for being here. Um, I'm sorry to have to ask you to recount what happened to you, but I think for the purposes of understanding what you and many people in Israel have been through, um, I'd, lo- I'd, I'd, I'd really appreciate it if you could talk to me about how you first realized you were under terrorist attack. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's really important for us to uh, let the world know what is going on here right now. Um, so uh, we went to the party, having fun at 6.30. Uh, we start hearing the rockets uh, and realize we have to either run or uh, lay down on the ground. Um, it took us, it took us a few minutes to understand that is a more, uh, dangerous situation than usual because we do have a lot of, uh, rockets flying towards us, uh, in the South. It, it's not really unusual for us. Um, and after a few minutes, we realized we have to, to get out of there. Uh, I, I, I got to the car with my friends, started driving like crazy. Uh, everybody was really wasted and helpless and confused. Uh, it's it's a music festival. It's not it's not a situation when somebody obviously never you never expect this nightmare to happen. Um, so we started driving, uh, but uh, one way we had uh, rockets uh, and shooting, and then the other way uh, more terrorists shooting at us. Um, we realized we have to get out of the car, started running towards the fields. Um, the rockets never stopped. The shooting was from everywhere. No matter where we ran to, we saw other people screaming, coming to us, saying they're shooting at us. They were on uh, cars and motorbikes. Um, they just, they, they never stopped shooting. It was insane. I saw a lot of people falling down. Um, we understood we had to hit um, after something like two hours of running everywhere because I just I couldn't we couldn't 
run anymore and we didn't have where to they were everywhere the shooting was just on us above us we can hear the whistles um and the screaming uh in arabic and so we hid in that uh, place you're showing right now in the bushes um yeah we tried to reach the police they did want to help us but they just uh they told us that we're going to level with you. You you don't understand what's going on in Israel right now. So many people are being kidnapped and so many villages are being taken over by terrorists. Um, and so you're on your own. Wow. A lot of friends around us. Um, we, we could hear them screaming. Uh, we just I, thought that. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, it. but. That moment when the police said, you don't understand what's happening in Israel, this is violence that's happening all over the place and you're on your own. What went through your mind when you heard that? Um, I was really scared and sad. Honestly, I, I understood the police. I wasn't mad. But. But, yeah, helpless. How did you make it? I mean, you were you were effectively on your own for six hours. And I wonder what those six hours were like with you and your friends in the sight of uh, just devastation and murder. We stayed silent. We held hands. We prayed. Um, Every now and then we started crying, but we realized we have to stop because we don't want them to hear us. They were really, we can hear them around us. We didn't know if it's, I don't know, uh, five feet away or 10 or 20. We couldn't look. We had to, to stay still. Um, we realized we have to find a way to, to get out of this. So we send messages to our family and friends uh, with our location. Um, but at the same time, we told them that we love them. I told my family that I'm happy with the life I had. I, I didn't thought we were going to make it. Uh, I, am, I am so, so terribly sorry that you had to go through that. We are all thankful that you survived. Um, may the memory of those you lost in this be a blessing. Um, Milet Benheim. Thank you so much for joining me, us and, and telling our country what it was like to, to witness and survive a brutal, brutal attack. Um, we are thinking of you and, and everyone who has been affected by this. Thanks for your time. Thank you. When we come back, among the victims of this weekend's terror attack in Israel are a number of Americans. Their stories are next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
what I would say to the Hamas, all of that. I want my daughter and my granddaughter back. I beg of every official there, think of them as if they are your daughter and your granddaughter. What you have feel if it's happened to them. 17-year-old Natalie Renan and her mother Judith have been missing since Saturday afternoon, shortly after Hamas launched its attack on Israel. The two women are from the suburbs of Chicago and were visiting relatives for the recent Jewish holiday. Now their family and community fear the two may have been kidnapped or worse. Itay Chen, a 19-year-old dual citizen serving in the Israeli army, has also been missing since Saturday. His father has urged President Biden to, to, to quote, take an active role as much as possible. According to the White House, at least 17 Americans in Israel are currently missing or unaccounted for. And so far, 22 Americans have been killed. Americans, including Deborah Matthias, who in her last moments shielded her teenage son with her own body in order to protect him. Matthias was on the phone with her father as she and her husband Shlomi were gunned down. Aryeh Ziering, a 27-year-old IDF soldier, grew up in both Israel and the U.S. His funeral was held this morning in central Israel. His aunt, back in Connecticut, told USA Today that she felt shattered and hopeless. Hayim Katzman was killed by Hamas on a kibbutz near southern Gaza. He was a peace activist, someone committed to building a more peaceful future for both Israelis and Palestinians. His doctoral dissertation at the University of Washington was dedicated to, quote, all life forms that exist between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Today, speaking at a gathering of Jewish community leaders, President Biden mourned the dead and said he has not given up hope on finding those who are still missing. Now, the press is going to shout to me, and many of you are, that, you know, what are you doing to bring these, get these folks home? If I told you, I wouldn't be able to get them home. Folks, there's a lot we're doing. A lot we're doing. I have not given up hope on bringing these folks home. Coming up ahead this hour, Steve Scalise could be the new Speaker of the House. Maybe. As of now, House Republicans don't seem to be any in any particular rush to figure that one out or address the unfolding crisis in Israel and Gaza. We're going to have more on that right after the break. It's really, really important that this Congress get back to work. We select a speaker, go to the House floor, get to 218, and then get the House working again. And the first order of business under Speaker Steve Scalise is going to bring a strong resolution expressing support for Israel. Amid the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, the United States Congress is still without a speaker of the House. Today, Republicans held an anonymous closed-door vote to decide who should be the next candidate to lead their conference. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana won that secret ballot, defeating Congressman Jim Jordan by a vote of 113 to 99. It is not the 217 that Scalise needs to secure the Speaker's gavel, but there are indications that some holdouts are ready to line up behind him. Congressman Jim Jordan has said he will personally nominate Scalise to be the Speaker. And right-wing Congressman Matt Gates, who led the effort to oust the previous Republican Speaker, a man named Kevin McCarthy, has indicated he will also support Scalise. 
But again, absent any Democratic support, the next Republican leader can only afford to lose four Republican votes. And already some Republican members have said they will not vote to make Steve Scalise the next Speaker of the House. Joining me now is former Obama, Obama campaign manager and MSNBC political analyst David Pluff in the flesh and former U.S. senator, also an MSNBC political analyst, the great Claire McCaskill. Thank you both for being here. David, let me just start with you in terms of Democrats and how they've handled all of this. Is there any chance that Democrats do anything to help Republicans get out of a, a mess of their own making no, here? This is the Republicans problem to solve. And what a message is this in with what's going on in the Middle East? We've got another government shutdown looming. We've got urgent questions about how government needs to handle AI. Uh, and these folks can't even nominate a speaker. Uh, and, and given what's happening right now, the promises I'm sure Scalise is going to have to make to secure the votes should scare us all. Yeah. Claire, I wonder what you make of the um, backdrop of the Israel-Hamas war and the Republican is the right word ineptitude in sort of getting their act together to figure out, A, who's going to lead their conference, and then B, how to assist in something that I think they understand is of grave importance? Well, I think what this shows is this is beyond ineptitude, because typically when there is a crisis, parties set aside some of their differences and come together to unify around causes that are more important, frankly, than, you know, who, who is the next speaker? Do they have 217 or 218 votes? They're not doing that. I mean, let's count the ways the Republican Party is not uniting right now with Democrats in support of Israel and against the atrocious terrorist activity of beheading toddlers by an extremist group. First, we have a Republican senator who will not allow the confirmation of our most important military leaders. Next, we have a Republican House that can't come together long enough to even pick a leader to allow support for Israel to pass through that legislative body. And then tonight, we have the former president, Republican president, criticizing Israel behind a podium at a political speech. So it, it is frankly amazing to me that anybody in the Republican Party would be critical at all of the Democrats and, and their support for Israel and the president and his support for Israel when this is going on in wide open view of the entire world. Yeah. I, let's talk about the Trump of this all for a minute, um, David. Trump endorsed Jim Jordan. Uh, who only got 45 percent of the Republican conference's vote in this closed door session. It was a secret ballot. And I find this quote from um, John Fury, GOP consultant in the Post, sort of ironic. Having outsiders meddle in insider elections never goes well, says Fury. And Trump is the ultimate outsider. And frankly, most members don't like him very much. Oh, really? What have y'all been doing for the last, you know, eight years? Do you read anything into the fact that Trump's pick effectively did not win, went nowhere. Is there is there anything more to read in that other than, oh, wow, a secret ballot's useful in finding out how Republicans really feel? Well, it continues his losing streak. So since the 2016 election, he's kind of lost everything. Yeah. You know, uh, the 18 and 22 elections, disasters, his imprints on that. He lost to Joe Biden in 20. A lot of his Senate candidates either lost in primaries or cost them the Senate. So, you know, the losing continues. I think what it shows is, you know, um, they're kind of like jello in public 
maybe behind the scenes, uh, they don't march uh, entirely to his drummer. So it's really pathetic, actually. Um, so it shows maybe a little bit of inclination. But obviously, he's heading to be the Republican nominee, absent some surprise, which could happen. Yeah. Still time for a surprise. As Claire remembers, you know, back in 07, at this time, really October, Barack Obama was given up for dead uh, by most political observers. So it happens. Uh, but they're all going to get in line behind him. I do think Claire's point, you know, when you listen to all that parade of horribles, you know, there are going to be voters out there, even who might be unhappy with Joe Biden, like, do I really want to throw back in with Trump? And when you see the Republican Party around him, yeah. you know, completely so dysfunctional and so irresponsible, uh, I don't think it's helpful to him at all. You think that this is a true inflection point, actually, in terms of how voters cast their ballots? Potentially? I don't know. I mean, a lot could happen. We have 17 political lifetimes between now and when votes start being yeah. cast this time next fall. Uh, but it's not helpful. Claire, what of Steve Scalise as a potential speaker of the House? He is certainly on paper more radical than Kevin McCarthy was, even though he is positioned in contrast to Jim Jordan as somehow more moderate. Uh, What do you think about that potential leadership? Well, it's interesting to me. They were going to try to rush a vote today. And then all of a sudden, um, Steve Scalise hit a pothole. And it is not clear to me that he's going to get the votes he needs. Um, I'm not sure this will be resolved tomorrow or even the next day. It's not going to shock me if we end up having another third party candidate. And all of this dysfunction in the Republican Party really helped hurts them and hurts the Republican nominee for president. But I would also say, I want to underscore the point David made. We are a long way from the election. And one thing I know for sure, I came to the U.S. Senate because a president was very unpopular over the Iraq war. So depending on how these hot spots play out, both Ukraine and now Israel, um, that is really remains to be seen. And Joe Biden can't escape one thing. He is the president right now. And to any extent, these wars devolve into long, painful exercises that may involve American life before it's all over. Um, I think it is way too early to decide what's going to happen next November. Yeah. David, could you elaborate on what you're feeling, you know, in, in terms of the war at there, we know there are American uh, there are casualties. There are likely American hostages. We're sending over some military support. This is not going to be a war without any American f- fingerprints on it. And how risky is that for Joe Biden? Well, it's risky, but I think you just have to do the right thing. And I think you've got to, he's been speaking every day. He probably should continue to do that, inform people about what we're doing. Uh, to help with the situation generally with these American hostages specifically. Um, so you just have to stay on it. Uh, and the politics, I think you almost have to set aside, like uh, having worked in the White House, it's the last thing on your mind. Um, you know, they're working 24 hours a day. Um, they're feeling the pressure. Lives are at stake. Uh, and if you do the right things and take it seriously, and again, this is the thing about Trump. I mean, he didn't take the pandemic seriously. He doesn't take anything seriously. Thank God we have a president there. As tricky as the situation is, it doesn't guarantee at all a positive outcome. But you know they're going to make good decisions and do everything they can uh, to try and get as positive a result here as possible. As positive as. I think that's the key part of that phrase. Um, Claire, David, thank you so much for your, your wise words and assessment of this Insane situation. I appreciate your time. We have one more story for you tonight. Republicans, as we said, cannot seem to coalesce around a House speaker, but they have settled on at least one response to Hamas's brutal attack, and it involves blaming President Biden. We're going to have more on that coming up next.
Today, the Biden administration gave a classified briefing to members of Congress about the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. That briefing was intended to keep members updated about the ongoing crisis. Joining me now is someone who is in the room, Connecticut Democrat, Democratic Congressman Jim Himes, also the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, thanks for being here. I know there's not a ton you can divulge about that meeting, but Republicans walked out of it suggesting that the president is in denial about Iran's role in the Israel-Hamas war. Can you shed any light on any assessment or intelligence we have about Iran's potential involvement here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I can because I was in that meeting. And I can tell you that um, the very first Republican who stood up to ask a question of some of the most serious people in our national security establishment, the people who are looking at photographs of murdered and decapitated Israelis, um, the people who are contemplating hostage situations and what happens if there is a larger regional war. The very first question from my Republican colleague, and I'm not going to divulge who it was, was how can we, how can my constituents get more tactical gear to the Israelis? Uh, you know, how can my folks get vests and guns to the Israelis? That's where that meeting went. And of course, um, there is a, a legitimate amount of ambiguity about precisely what Iran's role was in the last couple of months, right? Now, by the way, larger question, this is really obvious, right? For decades, Iran has been training and providing weapons and providing money uh, to Hamas. So, you know, nobody's arguing about that. But you see, the focus on Joe Biden and the use of the word denial shows you where they are when we are in a global crisis, which is at all costs, you have to be able to criticize President Biden. Now, we have some, some legitimate, I can't get into details, but we have some legitimate um, cross-currents, information that is not clear, where we're hearing one thing from one person and other things from other people about exactly what Iran knew how. But my deeply unserious Republican colleagues decided that what really matters here is, is, is attacking Joe Biden over something around which there is a great deal of ambiguity. Yeah, there is no shortage of Republican criticism that's being launched at President Biden. I got to ask, though— in terms of your assessment about how the Biden administration is focused, do you get the sense that their top priority is freeing American hostages? I mean, where do the hostages rank on the list of priorities here as the White House engages with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu? Well, Alex, that's not the way the world works, right? The world doesn't work where we say, oh, we're going to make our hostages the fifth priority behind these other. Look, the reason that these people who were so rudely treated by my, my Republican colleagues today are as exhausted as they are is that they're trying to do a whole bunch of things at once. You know, and so there are multiple number one objectives, including making sure that Iran has the munitions. Uh, sorry, that Israel has the munitions uh, and the support that they need at a very, very perilous moment. And yes, another top, top priority is trying to identify where uh, all of the hostages are, including, and most importantly, the American hostages, which is a profoundly serious and difficult undertaking. Hamas is not stupid. They showed that through the success of this, of this attack. Um, and so, you know, these hostages are almost certainly dispersed. They're almost certainly well hidden and stuff. And so this is a moment in which very serious people are doing very serious things. And it just stuns me in a political body like I am in right now that my Republican colleagues would have the chutzpah to attack the president and the president's people. And boy, were there some brutal attacks against these people in that uh, in that closed hearing today at a time when they can't even elect a speaker so that the House of Representatives can be functional. I mean, it just it just defies imagination. 
When you, we talk about what the Republican behavior inside that meeting, there's multiple reports about uh, Republican Derek Van Orden from Wisconsin acting belligerent and yelling at Biden administration officials in that meeting. Can you elaborate on any of that? Yeah, look, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. I told you the story of the first Republican question, which was all about, you know, how can we get more tactical gear to the uh, Israelis? But yes, um, Representative Van Orden stood up and and just absolutely obliterated um, all of these people who had taken two hours. And by the way, probably haven't slept in five days, you know, uh, and it was just, you know, look, I, I understand people are people. You've got internal emotions. You need to find some place to vent those emotions. When we're in national crisis is not the moment to take up very serious people's time with the venting of your own emotions. Well, uh, the strategy uh, defies logic if it is even a strategy. Congressman Jim Himes, thank you so much for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. That is our show for this evening. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.